Welcome back to the Flat Out RC Podcast, Episode 7. My name is Andrew Sill, and gee, we've got a bumper show for you today, and I'm so glad that you've tuned in. Now, today's special guest is someone who I think is the biggest celebrity in the hobby going around at the moment, really. That's just my personal opinion, but his name is Ali Machinchi, and Ali hails from the UK, now resides in the US because he works for Horizon Hobby doing a lot of product development, you know, for example, the latest uh, X-Cub, the big cub that they've uh, developed, this massive 120 to 170cc or whatever it is, really giant scale, I think four meter wingspan cub. Ali was involved in that. He's well known in the UK. Uh, Al's hobbies, uh, a hobby business that he started with his family, uh, still going today, very big in the jet scene. He, he has been one of those pilots that's sort of, traveled the world uh, as a demonstration pilot so great to have him uh, I spoke to him over the internet oh, about a week or so ago now an excellent talk so that is coming up but before we get to that what's the scene been looking like well down here in Australia we're pretty much back flying we have got restrictions down here in Victoria uh, where I live they have relaxed the uh, the lockdown regulations which has allowed clubs to reopen with no more than 10 people flying at the field. And it's been really interesting to see how clubs have managed it. And I think some created challenges for themselves, unnecessary challenges. Uh, I'll give you two schools of thought that I've experienced from clubs that I'm a member of. One had a very official email, very long email with all the rules and regulations and and a process where you had to register to attend. And then the, someone would review that registration to make sure there weren't too many pilots flying at that time. And, then they'd notify you the next day whether uh, you were eligible to go and all this kind of stuff. And then there was another club that I remember, which I thought was the better approach, a very simple email, some bullet points summarizing the key key requirements. And then they had this rule that if you drove to the club and you were, say, the 11th person there, there were 10 other people out on the flight line, planes, whatever. The rule was wait and sit in your car. When someone else comes and finishes flying, they are to go back to their car and then someone else can go and fly. So it didn't matter how many people were on the uh, were at the field necessarily as long as they were sitting in their cars. And so they were, everyone was told to work out of their cars, not in the pit area. So then you could manage the movement between the car, your car and the flying area. Now, the, the club doesn't have uh, too many members, so it's not too bad an issue to manage, especially during the week when generally it's quieter. So I don't think they're going to have many problems with it. But I think that uh, trying to put regulations and putting like um, forms and things like that is really challenging. But I suppose something is needed because the last thing you want to do is turn up to the field and get told to go home. What I did hear is that some people are registering and they're not turning up, which ain't great either. Personally, I'm still not that keen to go flying. It's just too much of a restriction. I don't like being restricted to, in, in my flying. Uh, well, Within reason, of course. I always stick to to any you know safety requirements and all that kind of stuff. But this whole regulation of ten only, and you've got to register. Well, knock yourselves out if you want to go and queue up. But uh, I know that a lot of people went out there and and slam flights out over the last weekend down here. We had beautiful weather, perfect flying conditions. But um, I wasn't able to go flying. I, I had to go and do a motorcycle license. I bought a motorbike. And you know what? I know that many of you aero modelers would appreciate that because a lot of you like motorized things, whether it be cars, bikes, or whatever. And I've always been involved in lots of different hobbies. Aero modeling is one, 
it's one of the best and it's probably one of those hobbies that's going to stick with me till till the day i die i think now where some of these other hobbies like motorbikes there will be a, a an end date hopefully it's not because of an injury touch wood so anyway we're back flying and the good times are ahead Now, I've been keeping my eye out on any uh, new product developments and don't seem to be a truckload. There's still not a lot happening um, out there from, from manufacturer land. Uh, this whole COVID thing's probably slowed development down, no doubt. But there was something that I want to talk about which I, I found quite interesting. And it comes from uh, the RC Group's founder, Jim T. Graham. Jim T. Graham also, I think, is the owner or the developer of Real Flight, the simulator. Now, you've probably heard me talk about simulators in the past. And... I actually do love simulators. I think they have made me a better pilot. You know, the example that I give is that in 2007, I bought the Phoenix simulator. I bought a helicopter, T-Rex 450. I was getting back into the hobby after probably a 20-year break, really. Uh, and so I bought this helicopter and I built it and then I wanted to practice flying before I flew it and I got a simulator. So I did that for about five years. I didn't even fly the heli. You know, first son came along, was busy with work and parked the whole idea. But I was flying the simulator. Fast forward to about 2011, 2012, I think it was 2011. Uh, I decided to get into the hobby, bought an aeroplane and that kind of thing, go down to the, the local club, join the club. Uh, they put me to the direction of a guy that flew, flew mode two like me. He handed the transmitter to me and I started flying. Without any instruction, I took off and landed first flight. No problems. Hit the runway perfectly was not an issue. And that was on the back of flying a simulator. And then I think I, I got my, my license back then. It used to be called the Bronze Wings. I think I did it in 20 flights or 23 flights or something like that. And my brother did the same thing. He practiced on the simulator and he was able to, to get his Bronze Wings very quickly as well on the back of the simulator. So I've always loved the simulator. So Jim T. Graham put a post up on the RC Group's forum, which no doubt all of you are aware of, uh, been around for, for a long time now. And it's the Joe Nall, uh, virtual Joe Nall event. Now, Joe Nall is, uh, I think it's pronounced Joe Nall. I think it's Nall. It should be. Joe Nall event uh, is a massive, probably the biggest aero modeling event in the world. It is some, it's on my bucket list to attend. It's held, I think, around this time, May. May-ish, I think, as the weather starts to warm up in the US. Everyone descends on uh, the Joe Nile field at the Triple Tree Aerodrome. And uh, it's just, everything's there. You've got the 3D line for the aerobatics guys. You can fly off the lake. They've got the scale area. They have demo flights. It's, it's People bring their RVs and camp out. It's a massive, massive, massive event. Uh, I know that Aaron Bones Gull's been to it. I should have asked him more about Joe Nile. I think I did... Uh, off air when I interviewed him and he said it was just amazing, but it's on the bucket list. So anyway, I don't think it's going to happen this year, Joe Nile, because of the whole Corona thing. And so they've created the virtual Joe Nile, which is uh, basically with simulators, you can download new um, fields. And so they created a Joe Nile field and basically having a virtual event. So the way they did that, you download, you go onto their, the knife edge swap pages, it's called, and you have to have anywhere from real flight version seven, I think it is to nine, download the Joe Nile, uh, field and then jump on to the multiplayer section and you can join in with other people and fly at the journal fields that's the virtual journal now i actually 
before I recording this, I thought I'd better test it. And I downloaded it and loaded it up into my real flight. I've got real flight nine and it was great. It was really, really good. I had to tweak if some of the scenery settings that I dulled down a bit, but, uh, it was, um, it was actually really enjoyable to, to, to fly to a different field. And, uh, I really liked the idea. And I think we're seeing this in other areas of the world and or in our, in our world, music concerts and things like that, where everything's going a bit virtual. Uh, I don't know for those of you working the webinars, everyone's producing webinars at the moment. I don't know about you, but I'm not a big fan of webinars because I think people tune out. I should be since I work in marketing, but uh, I probably make a dollar out of it, but I'm too honest, I suppose. But um, I've been getting online with friends. Brad Worm, big shout out to Brad Worm, the Wormster from Machuca. He sends me messages saying, simulators up, you want to join? And we jump online, put the voice chat on, have a chat and have a flight at the same time. And it just makes it even more fun when you're flying with other people. So real flight, anywhere from real flight seven to version nine, you can buy a real flight nine from model flight hobby stores you can do it uh, a, a download through a system called steam uh, on your pc uh, you can so download it onto your simulator you got to pay for it of course about a, i don't remember how much i paid it was 140 or 170 or i'm not sure what it was uh, but it's under the 200 dollars mark but well worth it i must say well well worth it last year years and years and years you get a lot of value out of it and uh so yeah virtual Flying events, is that something that you would like to see more of? It's time for our special guest. And as I mentioned earlier, Ali Machinchi is my special guest today on the Flat Out RC podcast. And the guy's done so much in the hobby and you'll you'll hear all about it, but he really is... um, one of those guys that knows what he's talking about and he's really focused on sharing his knowledge. He's been on the scene for a long time, well-respected by many people across the globe. So it was, I sent him a message and I said, I'd love to have you. And, and he, he obliged and, and it was awesome. And uh, he even offered to come back. So I hope you enjoy this little chat with the gun, the guru, the celebrity, Ali Machinchi. Well, it's my great pleasure to have Ali Machinchi on the line all the way from... Where are you sitting currently, Ali? Central Illinois. Um, we are in very rural mid-America, um, about two hours south of Chicago. Now, I, I can see Ali on the screen here, his video, and he's sitting in his shed surrounded by aeroplanes. So, you know, this guy is a keen, keen aero modeler. Now, speaking on that, where did your history in aero modeling start? Like a lot of people, Pops, my dad, he was a very keen aero modeler um, during his school and college years. He traveled a lot to the UK. Um, he was educated in Europe, um, traveled a lot to the UK and would buy, you know, RC airplanes in the early 70s, which weren't that easily available. And um, yeah, he just got into the hobby. I came along and could have potentially spoiled things, but um, yeah, from an early age, I was at the flying field with my dad um, before I could walk and talk, I guess. And uh, yeah, just never left. You had no choice, really. You were, you were stuck. <laughs> yeah. You're born into it. And so, so through your your adolescent years, uh, was the passion for flying really, really strong? Were you getting out there a lot? It's weird. I've, I've worked in the hobby industry a long, long time, all my life, basically. But I worked in hobby shops for a long time. So we'd see 
kids come along you know young kids let's say seven eight nine ten years old who'd be really good and 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 have them motor skills to pick it up super quick but it'd always be this teenage time where they'd find other things um the the, the two t's as we've called them in the model shop and um yeah they'd, they'd go away i didn't do that i for some reason i was the oddball the freak <laughs> where i just stayed committed to rc aviation cars came along of course Females came along, marriage, kids and all that. But yeah, I never stopped for some reason. So during those days, did, did you did you find an avenue that you really uh, wanted to go down? So for example, I always say some people go down the gliding route, some people go scale, some people turbines, speed or aerobatics. What was, what was your thing? Was it a bit of everything or was it defined? Flight, anything that flew, absolutely anything. I've, I've, I wouldn't say done it all. I've I've, had, I've dabbled in everything um, that I can potentially do: um, fixed wing, heli, aerobatics, turbine, gliders. In the subsections, all of all those, you know, scale turbines, DLG gliders, a little bit of uh, turbine gliders, um, scale com- competitions. So yeah, I've I've always so i've never taken for granted how lucky i am and i've always taken advantage of it to the the best of my ability so if there's something i can have a play with i'll give it a go so uh if anybody's seen ellie fly and there's plenty of videos on youtube you'll realize that he actually is a master pilot he's a very very good pilot and what i've noticed ellie is that your aerobatic skills are quite high like you're a very competent aerobatic pilot is that something that you worked on from a young age or just something that uh, was part and parcel of your, your aero modeling uh, practices? One of my periods in, in aero modeling, I guess, um, probably late nineties, early two thousands, I was uh, competing in aerobatics um, in the UK. There was a freestyle aerobatic scene that was popping up around the world and the UK was involved in that. And we had uh, what was called the freestyle aerobatic masters run by the RCM and E magazine at the time. And um, yeah, that got me involved. I had friends who were in that scene as well. So that helped a lot. And um, it wasn't a conscious decision. None of it's ever been like, you know, I want to go down this avenue because that's cool. Or I want to go down this avenue because that's profitable. Um, It was just a case of, oh, that looks like fun. Let's give that a go. And that aerobatics was just part of that. Now, during those years, uh, you know, in the early years, obviously you had to build aircraft. I, do you see yourself as an all-rounder or would you say that flying is uh, more your passion than building? Where do you sit on that? Oh, yeah. oh, uh, flying by a long way. I mean, I, I spend a lot of time. I, I, you know, it's my job to build and assemble model airplanes, basically. But if you broke it down into the fun ratio, yeah, it's 90% out of the field. Flying is a means to an end for me. It's it's getting me out there playing with it. You know, that's where my real love is. And I, I enjoy building. It's not a chore whatsoever. Um, you know, I worked out the other day. I put together 39 airplanes um, in 2019. I loved it. Don't get me wrong. But the real passion is just getting out to the field. Now, speaking on that, and I'm going to sort of fast forward a bit. I might chop around a bit, Ellie, but... Uh, I've I've been reading magazines out of the US and your name always pops up at some of the big events like Top Gun. It seems like you've become a gun for hire to fly people's planes. Is that true? Because I don't think you own all these aircraft, but you keep on popping up as uh, flown by Ali Machinji. Um, I own a fair few of them, but never for hire. Um, I've always had that 
very strict line you know back in, again let's rewind 10 years before i ended up in the us and i was working in the uk in house hobbies i traveled a lot a lot a lot i mean one year i did 18 international events per se and my mantra was always somebody could pay for the flight somebody could pay for the hotel that was fine but they'd never employ me um i just it was a thing in my head i didn't want to be an employee i wanted to keep it a hobby and um it's a bit similar type situation in the us people will say look can you help me can you test fly a plane can you give me some advice can you give some setup tips maybe just show me what the plane is capable of and in that sense i'll never say no um if, if i feel like i can help somebody either by you know some tuition or making their plane better i'm all in so and you know, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying this like I'm a, a patron saint of anything. I love flying different airplanes. It's one of my, again, one of the real benefits of what I do is that I get to get stick time on a bunch of different stuff. So, yeah, you know, if, if we go back to for a long way around to ask answering your question, Top Gun is a great example. So I compete in two categories. One is the unlimited uh, category and the other one is team scale. Team scale, for instance, last year I competed with a ME262, as I've done in the last two, three years. That was built by a good friend of mine in Norway, um, who's a professional model builder, Tron Hammerstadt. The plane is actually mine. I bought it. I commissioned it. It was always like, I need, I want a plane for Top Gun. And that, you know, I paid Tron to build that. The other plane in Unlimited is the big T-34. That belongs to Joe Castileo out in California. And he will basically say to me, look, I need a pilot. I trust you with my plane. You've got some, you know, experience in this type of event. And yeah, that's that's flying for the team. The, the You are a known figure in, in some major events around the world. Now, again, just rewinding the clock back, and I'm jumping around, but rewinding the clock back, how did yeah. that all start for you, going from, say, attending local events to then moving into the international scene? For me, I think a lot of it was this mentality of I'm there to help. I'll do anything. You know, if, I, if somebody needs a model retrieving, I'll go and get it. In the early days, it was, it was that sort of thing. Um, I started traveling in 2002. My first international event was Florida Jets. Um, a friend of mine in the UK, Alan Kardash, had uh, developed... I knew Alan for a while. I'd, I'd been into jets for a while. The the whole turbine jet scene was sort of exploding in the, the UK. Alan was, I don't think you mind me saying this, a little bit senior in years. And he was struggling with the jets of the day. You know, they're all super highly loaded. A lot of them were old ducted fans that people had thrown heavyweight turbines in. And Alan was struggling to fly those. So he decided one day, he took a wing off an old Giles that he had, and he made the first boomerang jet, which, you know, pretty well-known worldwide as a good introductory jet he built it he turned up with it it was covered in uh, uh solar film at the time it it didn't look great i gotta say it was but ugly and in the jet scene at the time was again sorry if i upset anyone but it was full-on clicky you know that if you didn't turn up with a 10 grand bvm jet you were nobody sort of thing alan rocked up with this boomerang thing covered in solar film looked scabby from the day from the get-go but flew amazing, amazing, amazing. And we turned up to Florida Jets and yeah, I, you know, I, I was the pilot. He was the, the owner sort of thing. And we, we just flew, we flew it differently than all the other jets at the time. It, it was superbly capable. It flew slow as well as fast. It did a lot of 
aerobatic stuff that the jets wouldn't at the time wouldn't do so at the time i was flying a lot of uh, freestyle aerobatics so combined a bunch of that stuff into the routine and just got recognized and at first it wasn't good recognition you know i remember my first flight at florida jets they they tried to ban me during the flight because they hadn't seen a plane in that category do that sort of stuff before and they hadn't seen a turbine covered in solar film they haven't seen a turbine look this ratty. It had fixed gear, exposed servos. It's like, and this kid's flying it around doing rolling circuits and snatch, doing a negative snap with it. It's going to break. So, yeah, basically recognition, notoriety, whatever you want to call it, um, sort of started there and then just got invited to events. You know, people say, look, we're holding this event in Italy. We're holding this event in Thailand. And, and for probably... 12, 13 years of my life, I would spend a good two or three months solid traveling to these different places. And most of them would be um, funded by people saying, look, you know, we, we want you at this event. We'll pay for your hotel. We'll pay for your, your flights or whatever. Um, some of them were like Top Gun, for instance, or Florida Jets. And that were places I wanted to go. So I'd go, you know, I'll stump up the flight and sort of rolled it into the promotion of Al's Hobbies and, um, yeah, rode on that for a while. Well, let's just talk about Al's Hobby. So Al's Hobby is a, a hobby uh, retail business uh, in the UK. Am I correct in saying that it was established in 1997? Yeah, 97, 98. So I left uni in 97. Um, and, yeah, it was – my dad was working for a company called uh, Ripmax Hobby Stores, running their retail chains at the time. And, uh, yeah, we, we bought the property in 97, him and I, and we opened the doors in 98. Okay. And so, basically, it was a, a traditional hobby store selling a range of different equipment. Uh, but it seemed early on that you did get into the turbine scene and, you, and, and Elle's Hobby became sort of known for turbines as well. Is that something that you really pushed in that direction? Yeah. Yeah, it was an exploding scene. I mean, at the time when I opened Owls Hobbies for the first, so 98 till about 2000, I was really heavily into helicopters, um, 3D helicopters at the time. That scene was sort of blowing up and my friends were flying 3D helis as well. And then the jets came. I mean, they'd been around for a while, but they became one affordable-ish and more importantly, they became a lot more user-friendly. You know, we, we started to have self-start engines. We started to have liquid-fueled as opposed to gas-fueled model turbines. And I was like, you know what? That looks pretty cool. And don't get me wrong, the, the shop was growing. It was flourishing. And um, it gave me the means to experiment with jets. And I went in and started playing with it. And go back to what I said before, it was a very clicky scene, you know. And as I looked and I thought, it doesn't have to be this way. Jets, you know, Alan proved to me, a jet can be just as easy to fly as a model airplane. And I remember going back to the old man and saying, look, I want to go down this avenue. I want to start a jet center. And he was like, you're crazy. You know, we're never going to get the average punter in and, and into jets and so forth. And I was like, look, let me have a go. You know, it's, it's we can set it up in the back of the shop. It can be this own little entity sort of thing. So, yeah. And, and for the next probably 10 years, it was a big, big part of the shop. Probably the I mean, it never overtook the bricks and mortar like normal retail um, mail order stuff but it was close it was more than enough to sustain itself as a separate entity well here in australia our turbine scene is really thriving it's it's quite interesting see to that. see the, the growth of it. it it's amazing i've got i've got a turbine sitting downstairs in my house a awesome. sky master viper jet two meter 
And th- everyone should have one. All right. Well, that brings me to a point because in uh, like other aero modelers, we, we get online and we love researching our models and the builds and things like that. And you've been very, very active in forums. Um, way back, I think, to 2010 when this Skymaster Viperjet came out, there was you writing about your experience with the plane. And there's not many people that I, I listen to what they say and just trust 100% what they say. But you're one of those gentlemen where I read those forum posts and go, yeah, Ali knows what he's talking about. What Ali says goes... Did you make a conscious effort to participate in forums and share your knowledge? You, you mentioned earlier that you, you're big into it, but was that a conscious effort? Yeah, big time. I mean, a psychologist, probably a field day on me. But yeah, I, I remember as clear as day, goes back to the whole clicky jet scene, trying to get into it. And nobody was talking. Nobody was sharing information. You know, I felt really like, not ostracized, but on the outskirts of it, because I couldn't afford, you know, a 10, 20 grand BVM jet. So um, I remember coming back from a couple of jet events going, it doesn't have to be like this. You know, what? why? We're all in the same hobby. So what? Your toy is more expensive than my toy or your toy is shinier than my toy. They're still toys, dude. You know, it's like, okay. And at that point, I decided, no, you know, we start the, the, the hobby shop, the, the, the jet center part of the hobby shop. And I start helping people, you know, people who maybe are scared, put off getting into jets because they're really difficult or really expensive and, and convince them. Even even those early days um, of the first self-start engines, I always said running and operating a jet engine was less work for me than operating a YS-140. It was, you know, far less labor intensive, more reliable, in my opinion, for the number of hours you flew versus the amount of wrench time you put in. Everyone should have one. Everyone should have a go because it's it's another amazing facet of a wonderful hobby. Yeah, so, I, yeah. I agree. I think that uh, me just getting into jets now and buying a turbine, I, I was daunted. I didn't understand what was involved because if, you, if you're flying you know, uh, IC engines and electric planes and that, you get it. It's pretty, it's pretty self-explanatory. But once I got the plane and went through it, I went, gee, this is really easy. It's not hard at all, even to start the engine, like you said. It's even mounting the turbine is just so easy. And so it, it has really opened my eyes up. And I haven't flown it yet. I'm close because we've been in lockdown here, I think. As, as, have you been in lockdown yeah. over there in the US? Yeah. So we're, yes, we have. So. We're, well, things are, going, things are starting to open up here. We're doing pretty well over here in Australia. We've got things under control. So the next few weeks, I think we'll be up and running. Now, so we've talked about Al's hobbies and then, uh, you know, I think it was around 2014, your career took a different path. And I, I read a, a forum post where you announced that you were making a move to join your dream job at Horizon Hobby. Now, Horizon Hobby, as most of us know, is one of the biggest hobby brands in the world, if not the biggest, I'd say they are the biggest. And probably from my perspective, the most professional hobby business out there in the, in the, uh, in the marketplace you can see how why they've employed you, uh, Ellie. It's it, it's very very straightforward. But how did that whole uh, opportunity come about to join the Horizon Hobby team? It's a long story. Um, different to the outcome, really. The the start of it. So I was a team pilot for Horizon. Um, let's have a look. About two thousand and ten, I guess. Um, I was just flying doing my thing for house hobbies and so forth and was approached by a radio manufacturer that said look would you like to become a sponsored pilot 
And at the time, I thought that was just for people who were doing stuff like, you know, winning F3A championships and so forth. So um, I was like, wow, yeah, okay, we'll give that a go. It sounds amazing. You know, that's proper starstruck I was. And in a passing conversation, we had um, Horizon had just set up in the UK. They'd bought a previous, at least um, established distributor, Helga Racing. Um, they'd bought them out and made that Horizon UK. And I knew the guys from Helga because they were probably 10 miles away from our main store, which is the one I was running at the time. So, yeah, anyway, I just said to George, the managing director of Helga, who then became the, the, the manager of Horizon UK, I said, oh, you know, um, this radio manufacturer have offered me this deal. And he's like, really? Long and short of it is, he said, look, don't sign it. We'll counter it. And I was like, Oh, bloody hell, it wasn't the intention. But I ended up as a team pilot. So became a Horizon JR team pilot. Started, as I said before, doing all this traveling, lots of events. They, they really sort of blew up um, doing events, particularly international ones. The guys at Horizon US sort of saw me being in the, in the, in the States about four times, sometimes five times a year. And um, yeah, I got to know the, the, the crew there really well, and particularly the team manager. Pete Goldsmith, fellow was he? Um, he was like he was. He ran, he ran the team in the US, but he also ran me in Europe. Um, it was just easier, and and I see him so often and stuff. And he he had a plan of what he wanted me to do in Europe. So we worked together quite closely for about two or three years, I guess. And then um, yeah, it was bizarre. It was two thousand late two thousand thirteen, early two thousand and fourteen. We're talking via email, and he's like, oh, "I'm so stressed." Yada yada. I made one flippant comment about, "Oh, I'm always here if you need a helper, dude. I'll, I'll come there, and you know, I'll carry your transmitter case." And that led to another flippant comment from him, and back back and forth. Anyway, one hour later, I'm saying to the wife, "I'm like, have a read of this email, love. I think I've just been offered a job." And she's like, "What are you on about?" Anyway. Long and short of it was, yeah, Pete said, look, I'm I'm moving outside of the traveling role. He says he's getting tired. US was doing a lot, a lot of events, a lot of driving and traveling. He's like, would you ever consider becoming the team manager for the US? And um, yeah, so I was like, jumped all over it. I was like, okay, first thing I did was go to the old man and, and my mum and say, look, been given this opportunity. Business in the UK was already on the decline. I mean, we'd gone from six shops to four at the time I think or maybe three and um, yeah it was becoming apparent that the UK industry was was I won't say imploding but it was downsizing a lot and they were like yeah look if you want to do it you give it a try you've always got a fallback you're always going to be shareholder in out hobbies be clever keep a house in the UK just as a fallback sort of thing and um, yeah so it was pack your bags and give it a go so it came to Horizon um in the really cold winter of 2014 when they had the all the crazy snows and stuff and interviewed for about two weeks and uh, yeah basically got the job as team manager um, and that changed this is why it becomes a long story sorry to, to bore you but that changed because my work visa took a lot longer than expected a hell of a lot longer than expected um and in that meantime, Pete was sort of, look, you know, I'm doing two jobs. He's doing his marketing director role, which was an office-based job, but he was still doing the um, field marketing, which we knew for a year we had that as a buffer. That was always going to be the case because I didn't want to come to the U.S. on a temporary visa. And part of the 
package, the employment package was that Horizon would cover all of my um, paperwork, if you like, for getting a permanent work visa. That got declined first time round, um, appeared appear, like appealing of, on a normal basic work visa process. And at that point, it was like, oh, you know, we need to make a decision here. And, and basically, Pete went back into the field marketing role. And um, yeah, but I switched to a product developer role. And um, yeah, we reapplied, did a bit of uh, a creative, um, I wouldn't say marketing, but creative application process with the work visa. It, it changed from a straightforward, oh, he builds model airplanes too. And it was a bizarre loophole that our legal team in the US found, which was the hobby in the US and the UK is a registered sport. So they got me in on a sports visa and it was this really rando visa called an O1, which is a sports person of distinction role, you know, like top cricketers and, and basketball players get it. And then there's this one era modeler. <laughs> so, yeah. And that's how I ended up uh, being a product of other Horizon. Well, it's a very interesting story about that because uh, a, fr- a good friend of mine, uh, Ido Segev, who came from Israel, he actually got into Australia on a similar sort of basis as an elite uh, sportsman flying radio control aircraft. So, yeah. um, you know, it, it, people say that the hobby is just mucking around, but for, not for everybody. It can actually take you <laughs> no, all it over can the be, world. You know, yeah, it's taken me around the world. It's made me uproot my, my wife and two kids and all my toys and set up in central Illinois. But, yeah, it's a bizarre, bizarre thing. And um, a quick one on that was one time when I was coming back into the U.S. from I did a jet show in Canada and – immigration immigration on the way to canada is a breeze you just wave your passport coming back into the u.s from canada not so much and um yeah i was sat at tsa customs for ages like two hours and the guy comes out to me like passport in hand looks me up and down looks me up and down again he says so you know all the usual questions what are you doing where'd you live and where have you been and all that stuff and he's like um your visa i was like yep he said uh you know what it is i was like yeah of course i got it he said, don't see many of these. And he's just looking at me and he's like, so tell me, what sport do you <laughs> excel at? And he's just looking, I'm not, I'm built like no sportsman ever. <laughs> I was like, well, let me explain. You know, these radio and trombone airplanes in the back of the truck. And it took a lot of convincing for him. He had to actually phone somebody and say, yeah, look, it's a registered sport. So good luck. Yeah. Well, it's the same here in Australia. It is actually uh, registered as a sport. And you know, when yep. you set up a YouTube account or even with this podcast, I have to put a category against the podcast and I choose sport because okay. <laughs> it's either going to be sport or leisure, but I always choose sport. Okay. We're there athletes. Huh? We're athletes. <laughs> out there, right? Look at us. Now, yeah, all right. <laughs> having you on the line, it's something that I need to cover because of your involvement with Horizon Hobby. I really want to talk about uh, and share, share the, the, the knowledge that you have around uh, development of products. Okay. Uh, we see you popping up against videos. I just uh, your latest one, I think, is the the new big X Cub, uh, the Monster yep. Cub. Uh, you've, you've been aligned with a lot of different planes, like the Ultra Stick, and, and and lots of different models that Horizon been produced over the last so many years. Yep. Can you just talk me through that development process? Sort of starting with how do you, how do you decide what aircraft to make next? It's very much a team process. I'm the only developer. Um, well, no, actually, it's not. It's a, it's a lie. Um, I'm the senior developer for Hangar Nine. Um, we have 
another developer who works on eFlight, but also will help out. He's just done a product which will be released in the next few months. So, yeah, basically, it will be the team is the behind the scenes guys, like my brand manager, Alex Albors, um, our marketing manager, our marketing director, Steve Petrado. Um, we have a category manager, Eric Johnson. We have a category director, Chris Hune. And basically, I'll come up with an idea. I'll say, right, I want to make an ultra trip. I want to make a or RV4. RV4 is a good example because that was my first project that I did completely by myself, like a grown-up. Until before that, the first three or four were projects I'd picked up off of previous developers that had been in the system, had to finish off, had to round off, and so forth. The RV4 was like a plane that I wanted to do. I like RV, I like RVs in general. I like them. A four is my favorite. And um yeah, I went to my brand manager. I said, Al, I want to make an RB4. What do you reckon? He's like, okay, tell me more. Give him an idea of size, roughly what I want it to, you know, how big I want it to be, what engine category or uh, electric motor category. Start selling it to my brand manager, basically. And he can either at that stage go, yeah, okay, let's give it a go. Or he can say, that's an awful idea. If he says, yeah, let's give it a go, we'll go into a team meeting with all the, the other people I mentioned, the directors, um, the category directors and so forth, and pitch it and say, like, this is what I want to do. What do you think? And if they all agree, then we'll put it on the system. Our computer system, uh, QuickBase, basically tracks a project from the very beginning to the very end. And, um, yeah, there can be anywhere up to, I think the latest version of it is 92 steps in each project development hate to use the term boxes that need to be ticked but they are boxes to move on and um yeah so from if, if we get a green light they'll take it through to exec level which will then suddenly purchasing will come in sales will come in um and they'll you know, it's, it's not quite like um shark tank or something like that but it feels very similar sometimes where you're like okay we want to make this project and if it gets green lighted then they'll say to me right go and I'll, I'll i would normally already have a vendor in mind we have about four vendors that we work with right now on hangar nine um i would have a, a vendor in mind for that particular project and then i'd send what i call, I call a wish list we've got a much more professional term for it at work but it's my wish list it's my i want this airplane I want it to be this big. I want it to be, this is my target weight. This is my target cost. This is my wing section. This is my incidence, you know, all that sort of stuff. You know, I want it to have a opening side door. I want it to have lights. I want it to have wing bags. And, you know, you go in hot and heavy with the wish list. And um, yeah, from, from there, you have a bunch of correspondence with the vendor. It can be anywhere from, I don't know, a week of emails up to a couple of months, really, if you really want to get into battling out with a, with a factory for, for getting what you want. And then they send you a sample. Um, sample will come very, very raw, basic color scheme. And this in wood, it's very much different to foam development. That's a, another way of um, developing, but you'll get a raw sample in wood. I'll put it together, have a squawk list. I mean, behind the camera right now, I've got six project squawk lists um, which I'm running through which is basic stuff like okay don't like this do like this this needs changing that needs improving yada 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 and then go and fly the sample keep writing that squawk list um, you normally add a lot to it when you get out to the field and start wrenching on it and, and, and pulling on it and um, yeah you send that to the, the the vendor and sample two will come that can be 
I mean, the quickest I've ever done sample one to two is a, uh, probably 12 weeks. Sometimes it can be a lot longer. Um, and then you'll do that back and forth through, we try and do three samples. Um, I've done four before and I've done two before, stuff like the Ultra Stick, which was dead simple. That was a, a two rounder. Um, and then, yeah, it's you keep whittling down, ticking off those boxes until you're ready to release. And um, yeah, you've got a target date throughout this whole system, an ETR that you're constantly being held to and um, all being well. Normally takes 12 months is a quick project. Um, 18 months is about normal average. I'm four years deep into one project so far so far which is uh, yeah, getting a little bit testing right now. But um, yeah, they, they vary depending on the complexity of the plane. So that 12 months worth of development, uh, that involves a lot of effort, uh, not on your, be oh, your behalf and, and others as well. So obviously there's a considerable investment in, uh, in the development of models. Is that something that Horizon Hobby really value, that, that investment in um, research and development? Yeah. Yeah, we spend a lot of time. I mean, we have a lot of applicants for product developers, um, particularly on the foam side. Foam is where the money's at. And, you know, there's they're a massive part of our um, annual budget is brought in by the air foam category. So, yeah, they, they, they spend a long time whittling through potential foam developers and, and just product developers in general who come along and say, look, I'm a great pilot. That's great. That's wonderful. But it's that's about this much of PDing. Um, so, yeah, they put a huge, huge value on that because they have to. I mean, I worked out once what's involved in bringing a product to market. And it is well, well beyond what I had in mind. I mean, like I said, I've worked in this industry all my life I've, I've, from the day I left school. I worked in a hobby store and I thought I knew something about this industry, but in my brain, when I actually came this side of the, I wouldn't say the counter, but this side of the drawing board or the workbench and see what goes in, you know, silly things like shipping, the, the price it costs to ship a sample from Asia to the US it's crazy. You know, one of these sample airplanes I'm flying, when I sit down and work it out, okay, my wages, the shipping, the cost invested in just getting started with the vendor. If there's tooling costs, so if there's a, if there's a cowling or a canopy or wheel pants and we have to pay for tooling, all of those rolled in. You're, you're six figures in to a $300 airplane. It just, yeah, it's scary. Yeah, I don't think a lot of people realise how much work goes into to bring these models to life. And, uh, you know, everybody always, I always say with hobbies, people are trying to spend the least amount of money to get the greatest benefit. And, uh, yeah. but when you look at brands such as Hangar 9, to me, I think uh, quality. And I've owned a number of Hangar 9 aircraft myself, including your Ultra Stick. I've got one of those. I had a Cirrus and and these kind of uh, aircraft. Uh we're talking about larger scale planes in the Hangar 9 category. Uh, yeah. Obviously, it's not the biggest category for Horizon Hobby, but are you leading that that Hangar 9 larger scale sort of charge for Horizon Hobby? Because it appears that everything that you're doing is, you know, I've never seen you really fly a small aircraft. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's funny you should say that. Um, I did, if I, I've, I had to present this recently, funny enough, because... We, we merged with Hobico a few years ago, 18 months ago. And after that merger, the business model changed slightly. 
um, it and uh, not just for Hangar Nine, it changed across the board for Horizon. You know, it, it became very apparent that things had to be super lean. You know, if a company like Hobico could go under, it was you know we knew that the industry was was tight, and um, yeah, with that came new structure, if you like, and with the new structure came a fight to get the smaller models through um, what we call our, our hurdle process. And yeah, for a while we were doing giant, giant scale um, to get over this hurdle. But for me, I always felt that it wasn't what Hangar 9 was truly about. It, it, you know, it, it's an every man's brand. It, it's, you know, good example. My most popular projects in terms of sales and volume and, and profit since I've been with Horizon, not one of them has been over 30cc and by a long way. The most popular airplane I've made is a 15cc Cub and it has sold four times more than any other airplane that I've made. Yeah, so. oh, that, that Cub that you're talking about, the the yellow Cub? Yeah. Yeah, yellow carbon Cub. Yeah, it's it's one of those, it is, a, it is a striking um, plane. It, it, the scheme's great and, the, and the, the platform is great. And actually, just on that point, I've noticed that yeah. you've you've a lot of the aircraft that you've been involved in developing are short takeoff and landing style of planes, you know, uh, that kind of thing. Is is that something that you, you gravitate towards? I watched a video of the the timber. Uh, you've got the new the new carbs, the X carb range, and that kind of thing. Is that something that you enjoy? I like it. I enjoy it. I'll be brutally honest with you. It's a marketing thing. It's play factor. It's a trend it's a fashion it's a genre it's whatever you want to call it a segment that's pretty hot um and i get why it's hot it's a lot of bang per buck it's pretty easy to get into it you know it's a friendly shape that we all know and love um and the play factor is high you know and that's a a, a, a term that i use a lot at work um and it really does seem to um be well applied to ARF model airplanes. Those products that have play factor do better. And it can be simple things like lights. Lights are play factor. That's a tick box. Great. Have that. Flaps, play factor. Sprung undercarriage, tick that. Wonderful. All of those things. And stow airplanes just have that. You know, if you look, you look and you go, damn, that plane's got it all. You know, it's simple to fly. It's pretty straightforward to build as an aft. Um, we can build it out of wood and cover it in ultra coat and it doesn't look wrong. It's got all these play factor boxes, easy to make it strong. You know, a lot of them have got wing struts and so forth. So yeah, from a from an aft manufacturing point of view, they're great. I love them. But I also have noticed that when you build these cubs and you produce the videos and all that kind of thing, you're not just trundling around doing stall turns and uh, circuits. They all seem to Did have an aerobatic. The, the recent, the recent one you were flying as some aerobatics with it. No, only after the event. That was a conscious effort. Really? But, yeah, it's a weird one that because um, the show off egotistical air show pilot in me always comes out when we're doing videos and i always get ripped for it there's always a comment that comes up and says god you guys should employ somebody who can fly an airplane as it should be flown and and it, that started on early on and one of the videos i did for the um uh, d7 the Fokker d7 i actually went to a videographer and said mary I want this video to be structured like this. You know, I want to start off with nice and gentle. It's a World War One, and then I want a, a needle scratch. I want, and then I want, a, you know, it doing 3D aerobatics. I want it to be clear and obvious that 
we didn't just stumble onto flying it like an idiot. It, it's, it's a conscious effort. Still got ripped for it. So on this Cub video, I was like, I don't care. I said to the videographer, I don't care. This is going to be straightforward, touch and goes, maybe a one-wheeler. That's it. I'm going to do a what I call organic video, post-release um, video, where I go and fly it like a tool. You know, and, and I'm still going to get ripped for it. But, but hey, I, I as a marketer, I know that your philosophy works, that when people see the versatility of the airframe, so I'm a big aerobatics fan and 3D aerobatics and that kind of thing. And so when I see a plane that can hover, it's actually telling me something about that airframe, even if I'm not going to do that. So when we talk about light wing loadings and short takeoff and landing prowess and all that, well, you know, it's it's, it's aerobatic. I've got, this is a personal question because there's a friend of mine, Dominic, and I'm ribbing him at the moment for having too many cubs. He's literally ordered the latest. Never had too many cubs. Well, he's, Never, ever. No, don't say that. He, he's, Dude, he, I get ripped. I get people from England, like my good friends. I got Facebook messages saying, congratulations, you've built another cub. Yeah. And I'm like, yep. And another Mustang. And there'll be another cub after this and another Mustang after this. Well, Because they sell. My friend Dominic has just, he has a 30cc. He's got the 15cc, the 30cc. He's got a Hempel big cub. Now he's got the X-Cub 60cc. And now he's placed an order for the latest big one. He's going to put 150cc or something in it. And I said to him, how many stall turns can you do? You know, before people start to fall asleep. But I personally, I love, I have got a bush plane myself and I love the short takeoff and landing. Actually here in Australia, we had the first ever model stall competition. Oh yeah. How did that go? Unreal. It was great. We had a lot of, yeah, a lot of e-flight planes. There was two categories with uh, foam aircraft and then um, your balsa gases and that kind of thing. And if the majority- time, send me a link to that because that's something I've been pushing work. that I, I think it's got legs. I think it's got, you know, potential because so that's what made the stole category popular. You know, the Valdez competitions and yeah. so forth is what got us all interested in doing this stuff. So well, I'll send why you a, have we not made it? I'll send you a link to the video that I produced around Please. the event. and. It was some serious, serious fun. So we know that it's going to grow and the organizers did an excellent job and, and they made a day of it. It wasn't just about the flying. It was about the food that we ate. And it was a really, really, and it's a very, very simple concept. So definitely tell the team at Horizon, Stolcomps uh, will sell more planes. We We've did- been kicking it around for a while. It's how to implement it, it is what we're debating. Um, but yeah, for sure, for sure. It's something that I want to do. I mean, it's, I do this video um, series called On the Fly, and it's something that I want to incorporate into an, uh, On the Fly series. Um, my co hosts and I, where we go out and so, right, have a little stole event set up. So I'm all for that. Yeah, excellent. Well, I'll, I'll send you some more info on, on what we did down Thank here. you. Now, uh, when it comes to testing the, the, the planes, and let's let's use, say, the, the, the new X Cub, if you haven't heard about the X Cub, which you should have because I talked about it in, I think, episode two one or two of the flat out rc podcast where i said there's this new giant scale cub coming from hangar nine what does the testing process look like when you get that plane out to the field what are you looking for um it's quite organic and adaptive um we have some boxes to tick i'm afraid using that term but yeah we have you know structural tests general we'll build up to it we i will build up to it um where it's just basic first test flight like test flying everything else um make sure it's all right stole testing all the boring stuff and then we'll work up to high speed testing um then we'll do structural testing then we'll do 
and this will be across both sets of samples. So we'll structurally test the first one. Um, SATA destruction, but it's probably only about 50% that we go all the way to destruction. We, we go beyond what the customers, what we expect our customers to fly. And our expectations of how hard our customers fly are way up there based on, you know, feedback that we get from product support. So, you know, we'll come close to destroying them as, as we can. Um, and then if it's a subject matter where we're particularly concerned that it's going to be flown um, more aggressively, then it will be a test of destruction. Um, and all the way through that, we're, we're changing things, we're changing center of gravities, we're changing load, we'll increase wing loading as much as we can. We'll go for the very forward to the very aft center of gravity quite early on. Oh, sorry about that. Um, yeah, just to get an idea of where we're at in terms of where it's flyable. Um, yeah, and then if there's any major changes, then that will start, I wouldn't say all over again, but we'll certainly start with the structural stuff. And usually after about, it depends how problematic they are, but let's say 30, 40 flights is when I start getting other people involved. I'll start getting other product developers and say, right, do me a favor, Gary, here's a plane, go and fly it. Just give me some feedback. And then we tend to have anywhere between two to five other product developers fly, depending on the complexity of the product. So something like the Cub, it's pretty straightforward. I had three other people fly. And funny enough, one of them tested it to destruction unwittingly. The, the first sample, the um, uh, wing strut uh, attachment pulled out and he was doing you know, way beyond aggressive flying. And um, unbeknown to us, the strut had failed, so he popped the wing. So we knew that was an area that needed to be changed and that was changed between sample two and three. Now, it's often said that uh, if you want to ruin your hobby, uh, get a job in the industry. Uh, yep. Obviously, that hasn't been the case for you. But uh, how have you been able to to keep motivating the hobby? Is just a passion for it stronger than anything else? Yeah, there is that. It's a conscious effort. Again, working in the hobby trade, I've seen it a lot. You know, and I've heard that saying of it's a great way to ruin a hobby. And I knew from an early stage i didn't want that to happen um so i work very hard in separating um hobby and job and that's difficult at times you know nearly impossible um today's a good example i was like right it's, it's a beautiful day here we've had pretty crappy weather for the last week or so wind and rain and so forth and we had a beautiful day and i was like right i've got models in the hangar to test um out at eli and i was like nope not gonna do it and took the boy out there he, he wanted to do some flying um, and the flying that I did was all non-work related airplanes. And, and that was conscious, you know, so I've got to separate that from work. Yeah. So now, yeah, it's, it's a job. A final question on the, on the industry side of things. Now, if there are any young kids out there that are listening to this podcast and they're interested in a career in the hobby, what do you suggest they do? Get as many CAD type skills as you can um i'm i'm without a doubt the last generation of non-cad trained product developers we'll ever see um i'm i'm a dinosaur at work luckily i'm working in a segment of the hobby most mostly like hangar nine i do some foam stuff but let's say hangar nine where 3d cad isn't that widespread um it's mainly 2d and i can bumble my way through 2d but yeah, 
you know, if you're thinking of getting into product development anyway, brush up on your CAD skills, get on a course, get solid works under your hat um, as soon as you can. It's a skill set that is absolutely invaluable in this trade, but also applicable in other trades, unlike what I've got, you know, which is like 30 years of flying to airplanes is only any good for flying to airplanes. Um, but yeah, get, get CAD under your hat. Um, fly as many different things as you can. I know your main interest may be this week, 100cc aerobatic airplanes and flying like Jace Ducia. Great, wonderful. Don't lose that passion, but get other experience. You know, they don't all fly like a 100cc aerobatic airplane. You won't be developing just 100cc aerobatic airplanes. Fly gliders, you know, fly free flight. Learn the basic mechanics. Go backwards, you know, don't go... To go forward in this hobby, you, you do need to go backwards to gain the experience of, of straightforward fundamental aeromodeling. Um, that's that side. And the other side, the, the computer side, yeah, go forward as quick as you can. Okay, so now I want to touch on the turbines. Um, because it has okay. been a big passion for you, and I've seen yes, you, I've seen you fly so many different um, jets. And one thing I love about it when when you produce these videos of uh, you flying is that you fly jets as they should be flown. I, I believe you know it's not just the high speed pass and then we'll do a low speed pass, then we'll fly a few circuits and that kind of thing. It's pretty much in your face, very smooth uh, jet like flying, as I call it. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. when, when it comes to you, your own personal preference as far as what model turbine models to build do you have one particular sort of genre of model that you you do enjoy more than others or again a bit of everything it's variable um it was for a long time sport jets i was big into the sport jet scene of the the bigger like the havocs and the futuras and so forth i've seen to have migrated away from that and um gone more towards the scale jets i'm flying a big behind me is a skymaster su30 it's an air and i try and fly that in an air show type manner um so yeah it's variable speed I've always there's always been this thing in me for going fast i love i, I love it it's one of those things that's never left me whether it be you know gliding whether it be turbines whether it be even helis i did the high speed heli thing for a while i like going fast so yeah there's always a high speed plane in the in the hangar somewhere um but right now it's yeah big and scale i've got when i think about the jets that i've got in here right now um my three favorite ones are big scale the big f86 the big f18 and the big su30 so yeah now i've i've Again, in another magazine from from the US, I've got it on the floor here. The the havoc with the super chipmunk scheme. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when I was a child, I fell in love with the super chipmunk, and it's on my bucket list. Who didn't? When I grow older, I'm going to have a super chipmunk, yeah. and I want it to be beautiful, and I want it to be large scale. I don't want a small super chipmunk. I want like a hundred cc, because I just there's something about oh, that scheme, and. How did you come about getting that scheme onto the Havoc? Was it, what was the process? Because it's almost a personal question here because I, I look at that photo over and over again and go, how was it painted in the mould? Was it vinyl? Uh, how did you do it? Uh, first one was painted in the mould. Um, second one was painted, which I'm looking at now, was painted in the mould, but they messed it up. They they painted it grey instead of white. So it was painted out. The fuselage was painted outside the mould. But the process has always been for me, one of like little stupid modeling mantras is if you like the look of it 
that's all that matters. It doesn't have to be scale. It doesn't have to be accurate. You know, these are toy airplanes. It's more important that it looks good and looks right to you than looks right to a scale judge. I mean, if you're going to a, you know, a scale competition, then I get that. But this is a sport jet, dude. You know, and like you, I love that color scheme. So it just made obvious sense. You know, lift that color scheme and put it on this airplane. And I've done it to a few airplanes. I've just got a glider I'm doing with the super human color scheme oh, as really? well right now. Uh, yeah, but it's it's as simple as that, really. I, and I'm always looking. I'm always looking at schemes, going, you know, I like 90% of that scheme, but I don't like the rudder. And I'll try and bank that and go, okay, maybe I'll use that later on. Or wouldn't that scheme look better on that airplane? Or you know, and, and I've done that a number of times, even with scale airplanes where I've borrowed um, a, a scheme off of one jet and put it on another. So, and that's how it worked with the Havoc. It's interesting, actually, with the, the Ultra, the Hanging Iron Ultra stick with the green. Yeah. And I love that scheme. There's something about a green and white stick. It just, it just oh, a lot of lot of grief getting that one through um, because the the marketing team was so worried about being a, a phrase that we use at work is polarizing. Um, they were super worried. I had to fight pretty much tooth and nail to get that one through because it's we play a numbers game. You know, it's like okay, red, yellow, blue is always selling. It's always good. You're never going to upset anyone with a red and white airplane. And, and I come into it like, no, it's got to be, it's got to be green and white and it's not got to be the right green. It's this bright with a black stripe to set it off. And all the marketing guys go, no, don't do it. And um, yeah. I, just... I don't, I don't agree with your marketing guys because every <laughs> traditional scheme has been done to death. And right. if you want to stand out in the crowd, you have to do something different and you need to polarize people to push ahead. So if, it's, Sometimes people aren't looking for me twos all the time. You know, yes, when we're looking at a scale plane, if we're looking at a Mustang or a yeah. Spitfire or something like that, I don't want to see a super chipmunk scheme really on, a, on an old warbird. It just <laughs> might not work. But but when you're talking about a sport, it's a good idea, actually, a Mustang. Yeah, a, a super chipmunk scheme on a helicopter canopy would be great, I think. So but, done, make it happen. Yeah, yeah, no, that could be good. Yeah, it's a plane that I've been wanting to make as a hangar nine airplane for a while. And this is another thing that you know we, we go back to industry stuff that. You know, it never occurred to me so much. And and I get asked, not a lot, but oh, why don't you make us hang a nine super chipmunk? Love to. Love to tomorrow. You know why we can't? Nobody wants. All the um, sponsors on the side. Oh. Yeah. Everything. I'm looking at it now. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. There's ten that I can count right now. And each one of those sponsors, we'd have to go to the company and say, right, we want to make this product using this your um, uh, logo, and they'd all want a royalty, every single one. You're bursting my bubble so. here. I really want the super chat. Yeah, I mean, right? You know what? Maybe just, I do. just give me a white one, and I'll work out the rest. That'll be all right. Well, that's what I went to marketing and said, right, let me make a super chip on color scheme and we'll do a deal with a graphic manufacturer. You know, I'll put a file in each box yeah. and say, right, here's the file. You take this to your graphics company and have them make it, and I'm fine. It's this. Oh, they need to listen. Away they, they need to listen to you. you know, the I think the 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 people on the ground appreciate your way of thinking because we're hobbyists and we're passionate, and 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 the marketers need to be passionate as well. And you know, I, as I said, I, I run a marketing business, and you know, day to day, I'm marketing business to business technology and things like that, and. 
the marketing that I do around the hobby is really just about passion because uh, there's, yeah. there's no money in it for me at all, but it's about the passion. And so I love to see these passion projects come up. And what you find is that uh, it, it excites people and, and and we need that in a time where the hobby is sort of in decline. Now, I agree. speaking of uh, sort of models, have you got any models on your wish list that you'd love to develop? Oh, geez, yeah, so many. Super Chipmunk is one of them. Um, in the Arch Skull scheme, there was another Super Chipmunk that I was looking at developing, um, which is a modern one built by a chap in the US called Mark Meredith. Um, he's flying in the air show circuit right now in the US. It's a simple, iconic, it's a, it's a retro build that he's done a bunch of changes to, big engine, little aerodynamic tweaks, but it's just beautiful. It's elegant, it's simple. Um, there's that. I want to make a Sky Raider, um, but we just have a roadblock at work. I love Sky Raiders as warbirds. Um, that's on the list. I keep chipping away at that. Um, a jet. I just, I'm busting to make a jet at Horizon. It's, it's again, chipping away at that. Um, yeah, there's loads. A big turn, another a proper turbine glider. I'd like to do that. Um, I'd really like to go back and, and write. It's on the, the cards right now is our, our, our biggest fight is going back and making more smaller 20cc um projects for hang and iron i'd like to do a plug and play um and even a bind and fly hang and iron airplane that's on my radar of one day a wish list thing i'd like to take a hang and iron airplane out of a box at the field and, and fly it from the box to airborne just at the field with you know ideally no tools but you know very few tools definitely no gluing um so yeah there's there's infinite my my own personal bucket list never goes down it only ever goes up and work bucket list is probably about 20 30 airplanes right now and um yeah try and pick the right moment to pitch one and uh yeah if it gets shot down and file it away and wait for a another opportune moment to present it now you're a busy man you've got a lot on your plate as far as work um to be honest, no, sorry, I want you to be mm. honest with us. Yep. Have you got your dream job? Um, no, because it would be just flying if it was my dream job. I wouldn't have the paperwork. I wouldn't have, I'd have an admin person that could do all of the uh, computer stuff, the spreadsheets, the the, the, the paperwork, the, the, the quick base forms and so forth. Just leave me in my condo at work. We've got this separate building that I work in. Um, leave me in there to to develop. Eli Field to fly, develop, fly, have somebody there. I can just shout to and say, this needs to be changed. That needs to be changed. Or this needs to be processed. And yeah, that would be my dream job. So pretty close. I'm about 90%. Yeah, I'd be happy with that. I think you're doing well. Now, a final question I ask everybody. Uh, what has been your favorite plane? I get asked this a lot, a lot, a lot. And there is, you know, there is no answer because it varies day to day, you know, and year to year, month to month, whatever. This week it could be I was flying a, well, today I was flying a 88-inch span sample aeroplane from a vendor, aerobatic aeroplane, about a Laser 260. Love it, love it, love it. I've, I've not done much... 3d aerobatics for the last couple of years and and got this sample and and yeah 
just blown away by how this vendor has managed to save weight, get the strength, get the control authority. That that today is my favourite aeroplane. Last week, or sorry, the week before was my discus launch glider. Um, I had a little opportune moment in the break of weather. I've, I've got a few acres out the back of the house and I just thought, you know, I haven't done discus for a while. Pinged that up a few times, got away from a thermal at 15 feet twice and i was like yeah I'm, I'm back in love with this thing um trying to rekindle the the love for helicopters at the moment so yeah it's very yeah there is no on the turbine side my big su-30 is just yeah mind-blowing airplane for any jet yet alone and half so yeah no answer no definitive answer well ali can i just say a big thank you from all of us i think that uh You've become one of the biggest names in the hobby around the world. And I, and, and I think that's on the back of what you've given the hobby and the, the knowledge that you've been sharing and your approach to it. We see you in videos, you. we see you in forums and are always ready to help people out. So a very big thank you from all of us out in Hobbyland and also for the work that you're doing at Horizon Hobby. Because without people like you, we really would have a boring, boring hobby. We need to have those new products coming through. So a big thank you. My pleasure. And like I said to somebody quite recently, I said, look, it's the most useless skill set if you don't share it. So I'm happy to share it. Really good to be on talking to you. If you want to do this again anytime, it's always it's always fun. I love talking hobby. I love talking shop. I love talking toy airplanes. So yeah, just give me a shout anytime. It's been great. Ellie, we'll definitely do that. Next time you've got a new product, I'll give you a buzz and we'll, we'll get you your, yeah, straight from the horse's mouth. We'll get you. Yeah, so, no problem. Thanks for joining me, Ellie. No worries. There you have it. Great chat with Ellie Machichi. I hope you enjoyed that uh, as much as I did when I was recording it. Uh, we went on to have a bit of a chat after it. Um, what you couldn't see is we had our cameras on it. We connected over the computer and we had our cameras on it and uh, Ellie had spent the day out the field with his son. Uh, he lives near Eli Field, which is uh, that field that you know, if you follow Horizon Hobby when you see their videos, that's their sort of test track kind of thing so he was out there with his son flying but he was in his shed and he was surrounded by these amazing models and just having a chat and it was just an awesome experience and great to 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 meet ellie and spend some time with him so thank you ellie really really appreciate your the effort you made to to join me on the flat out rc podcast now normally i will talk about a product or feature product but i think we've had a, it's been quite a long uh, long chat with ellie and, and so on so not much to review at the moment. If, if anybody wants anything reviewed, just yell out and I'll see if I can get get a model or something to review from some of my connections. Otherwise, anybody that wants a model review that may be manufacturing or whatever, send it through or any products, um, we'll take a look and uh, and report back. I did a lot of reviews for the Flat Out RC magazine over the years, over 10 editions or two and a half years that we ran the magazine and Model Flight were a great supporter. And so I can slowly go through that repertoire for you but uh and even some of my own personal stuff that i've been using in airplanes like you know tech aero ibex to get rid of your ignition batteries and you know even little things i'll tell you what one of the little things is i love you know how you have to on a say on a, on a petrol powered plane you have to have an overflow tube to, to dump excess fuel if you've overfilled the tank well hang a nine make a nice little fitting that costs peanuts that allows you to um 
have this flush mounted exit so you don't have this unsightly tube popping out you have this nice black little uh, outlet and the tube will plugs into that outlet and so nice clean things so little simple things like that if i if i come across things i'll, I'll yell out things are just a bit quiet out there and uh not getting much love from anybody at the moment we're getting update on how the, the podcast is tracking just in case you think you're the only person listening you're not um it's actually growing growing uh the the the, the listening audience so it, it's these things always take time so get yourself lucky you're one of the early adopters and and i appreciate that so stay tuned there will be some more reviews uh next week we'll uh look deeper at another product uh as they come to hand so stay tuned about to leave already packing come with me i'm not really asking we'll get away to a place where we don't know episode seven done and dusted once again and i really appreciate you joining me don't forget to subscribe to the flat out rc podcast Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or Spotify. So more than enough choices there for you, whichever way you want to get the podcast. I've also been loading them up to the flatoutrc.com.au website. That's flatoutrc.com.au. You'll see a podcast page and all the latest episodes are there if uh, you have been able to, to, to connect it in any other way. It's free. Uh, so there's no excuse. People have been sending me messages uh, saying they're enjoying it, and I'm really, really glad to hear that because you never really know. I'm literally sitting here in my bedroom because it's the best place to record. It's nice and quiet. Kids are downstairs watching Lego Masters or some other some television show, and whilst I'm doing this, so really appreciate you joining me. Don't forget merchandise flatoutrc.com.au. Whole bunch of t-shirts uh, there that you can wear. But I'll tell you what. In Australia's getting colder, so I don't know where you need t-shirts. But grab one anyway, because they look great. They'll make you a better pilot, apparently. So anyway, uh, thank you for joining me. Uh, thanks to Ellie Machinchi once again. Uh, already got another interview uh, lined up for next week. It's going to be another big one and plenty more to come. So thanks again and enjoy your flying privileges now. we are turn the corner, hopefully, with this whole coronavirus thing and we'll be back to normal in no time. So thanks for joining me.